Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network and a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. And this is a literature review series where I collaborate with up-and-coming pharmacists, pharmacy residents, and students to recap notable research and articles. We all know how hard it is to keep up with the literature, so let us help. And today, we're discussing articles from March 2022. Now, we'll cover six studies kind of more in-depth. We call that the six-pack of studies. And then we'll give some highlights that have general themes, whether it's cardiology-themed, infectious diseases-themed, um, but regardless of all that, each episode we end um, highlighting the amazing work our pharmacist colleagues do in our final segment, The Front of the Fridge. So we're in for an awesome episode, ladies and gentlemen. But first, a word from QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools, and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com A-P-P-S. Now let's introduce our awesome PGY2 guest hosts today, Paige Miller and Jonte Warren. So Paige is from Northeast Ohio and received her PharmD from the Ohio State University. I have to emphasize that the the was capitalized for the listeners out there in Columbus, Ohio. She completed a PGY-1 residency at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan, and is currently completing her PGY-2 critical care residency at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. And her Twitter handle is at Selexi Page, so S-E-L-E-X-I and then Page. Now, Jonte Warren is a PGY2 pediatric pharmacy resident at Riley Hospital for Children in Indianapolis, Indiana. He's originally from Mississippi, where he attended pharmacy school at the University of Mississippi. And I got to point this out for the listeners as well. It says, aka Ole Miss. You got to shout out where he's from. Now, I feel like we should, we should say College World Series champion Ole Miss here, but Ole Miss nonetheless. And he is on Twitter 
at Jonte Warren. So he was able to get one of his names. So that's awesome. Uh, Paige Jonte, how are we doing today? Doing pretty good, Nick. Same, doing pretty good. Can't complain. Now, um, it sounds like, so I... I ask when when guests come on the kind of a little form to fill out and and one of the things put on was John Tate loves to play some trivia. He likes a, a good game of trivia. So my question for you all as we lead this episode, Jonte, we'll start with you. Paige, you can follow. Is you know, when you're playing trivia, right, you're in the group, I feel like each person brings one specialty. Like this group, it's like, oh yeah, I'm on this. Like sports and dates tend to be my two. I'm very good with those for whatever reason. So Jonte, what's what's your go-to category that you know, here we go. This is what I'm here for. Uh, for me, it has to be movies. Um, I actually watch a good amount of movies. So I feel like that's the category that when we when we have trivia, I usually do pretty good in that area. Oh, I love that. Okay, Paige, what about you? Mine would definitely be music. Uh, my taste kind of spans pretty much every genre, every decade. So I feel like I've got the, the music down for sure. <laughs> Man, movies, music, sport. We'd make kind of a pretty good trivia team, not going to lie, team. But the real reason we're here today, let's get into these six-pack of studies. Now, um, the, the study I feel like that's the cream of the crop of this month is the plus trial. So Jonte, uh, take us away into the, uh, into our first six pack of study. Sure. So, um, 0.9% or normal saline is probably one of the most commonly administered fluids in the, uh, in for patients in the ICU. Um, along with its use is the concern for acute kidney injury and even increased mortality in some studies. Um, because of this, there's kind of been some increased interest in the use of balanced solutions. The BASICS trial was um, a randomized trial um, that took place in Brazil in which the authors had actually concluded that there was no difference in 90-day mortality between normal saline and balanced solutions. However, another trial that actually took place in the United States um, called the SMART trial, um, they uh, looked at the use of balanced crystalloids um, versus normal saline. Um, and they actually saw that uh, with the balanced crystalloids, there was a lower rate of the composite outcome of death, um, new renal replacement therapy, or persistent renal dysfunction. Um, so far, improvements of outcomes in the ICU setting with balanced solutions have been pretty conflicting. Um, the PLUS trial by Simon Sinfert and colleagues is actually a double-blind randomized control trial in which patients from New Zealand and Australia were assigned to receive either plasma light um, a balanced multi-electrolyte IV fluid or saline in the ICU for 90 days. The assigned fluid was used for both fluid resuscitation and compatible medication um, diluent therapy in the ICU. Patients were included if fluid resuscitation was deemed necessary and were expected to be in the ICU for at least three consecutive days. Patients were excluded um, if they were expecting to die in less than 90 days they had received greater than 500 milliliters of disqualifying fluid resuscitation, and if they had a TBI or were at risk for cerebral edema. There was a total of 4,846 patients who underwent study analysis for the primary outcome, which was a composite of any cause, looking at 90-day mortality, 
Um, baseline characteristics were similar among the groups, with a mean age of 62 years old and majority being male. There was a median Apache 2 score of 19 in both groups, um, which for those of you who, who may or may not know, the score of 19 um, predicts um, them to have a mortality rate of around 25%, um, and almost 80% of them were mechanically ventilated at the time of randomization. Both groups had received the same amount of IV trial fluid, which was roughly around four liters. Um, looking at the primary outcome of 90-day mortality, um, there's 21.8% in the plasma light group versus 22% in the saline group um, who had died. Um, so therefore not really seeing a statistically significant difference between the two. The study did acknowledge the possibility of not seeing a difference due to patients in the balanced solution group needing to use 500 or more mils of saline um, with delivery of medications um, just due to the incompatibility with the plasma light. Um, although pH was higher and serum chloride um, was lower in the plasma light group, there was ultimately no difference seen between creatinine or lactate. Um, acknowledging there are conflicting results, this trial did not show clinical benefits um, to using plasma light. And considering all the evidence, I think it is reasonable to pretty much continue using normal saline um, in this population, um, just given the cost and accessibility um, with the plasma light. Now, Jante, this is a we we are a pro balanced solutions on on the pharmacy to dose. This is abnormal saline. So let's let's dive in here a little bit. Now they did use plasmolite, which I joke with with all of my trauma friends that plas plasmolite is bougie LR. It's lactated ringers for more or less, just a little bit different. Um, so a couple things, like you mentioned, the the really cool thing is that. Baxter literally studied meta, like they created, like they studied 87 drugs for compatibility to figure out what they could mix in plasma light or not. So I thought that was really cool. Um, now you mentioned the, the patients who received, you know, greater than 500 mLs of like the non-study fluid and in the balanced group, that was 63% of patients. Um, so a, like over 50%, so almost two thirds of them um, received a lot. So I, I think that may kind of play a part. Um, the other thing is, I, the other thing that stood out to me is they got four liters of fluid in six days. So I think maybe you just see less of a difference when you use less fluid, right? We're just getting better at fluid stewardship or things. Um, so I'm not really, I'm not sure. I know um, we're going to, we're going to put a pin in this. this is what we call a tease here. We're going to put a pin in this because Jante is going to come back um, and we're going to come back and talk about balanced solutions, kind of another patient group. Uh, but we're fair to the opposition. We presented this trial that didn't show any difference, but I still feel strongly against normal saline. Now, that being said, so Paige, let's kind of stick on the same sepsis route and let's talk about a therapy that um, we're trying also to use to help prevent vasopressors from being on or at least continued. Yeah, absolutely. So in the realm of septic shock literature, there are several studies examining the relationship between septic shock and hydrocortisone use with an unclear indication of benefit. Recently, randomized control data published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine concluded no differences in mortality or reversal of shock um, exist 
and the investigators further speculated that delaying the initiation of hydrocortisone would have no impact on septic shock. Other meta-analysis concurs that optimal hydrocortisone utilization in septic shock is not thoroughly clear, which kind of brings us to this study that we're talking about here. So Reginanan and colleagues sought to evaluate the impact of early versus late initiation of low-dose hydrocortisone in septic shock patients. The study included adults with septic shock as identified per ICD-9 and 10 codes who received continuous vasopressor infusions for any duration of time with hydrocortisone at doses of 300 milligrams or less per day uh, between July 2014 and August 2019. Patients also had to be receiving other standard of care agents such as impure antimicrobial therapy. Key exclusion criteria for this study were cardiac vasoplegia, previous corticosteroid use within 30 days prior to admission, history of adrenal insufficiency, documented cardiac arrest within 30 days of admission, and the early treatment group received hydrocortisone within 12 hours of vasopressor initiation. The late group, however, received hydrocortisone after 12 hours of vasopressor initiation. The primary outcome that they examined was time to vasopressor discontinuation. The secondary outcomes that they included were in-hospital mortality, ICU and hospital length of stay, maximum norepinephrine equivalent dose requirements, which was calculated for the ATHOS-3 protocol, as well as IV fluid administration during first 72 hours of shock total insulin requirement from the initiation of vasopressors and the need for renal replacement therapy. The statistical methods that they used in this study, uh, the primary outcome was uh, utilize the Kaplan-Meier curves and Wilcox and Lagrange test. Uh, the two groups were propensity score matched and multivariable linear regression was utilized um, as well for the analysis of the impact of time to hydrocortisone initiation. At baseline, the two groups did differ in lactic acid level, norepinephrine equivalent dose, and mean arterial pressure at vasopressin initiation, but were otherwise similar. The uh, Worth noting, though, the early group had the higher lactate, higher norepinephrine equivalents, and lower mean arterial pressures. In the 240 patients that were included in the study, Early hydrocortisone initiation was associated with a, shorty, a shorter duration uh, of vasopressor administration compared to the late group, so 40.7 hours versus 60.6 hours, which yielded a p-value of 0.0002. The linear regression model estimated that every hour hydrocortisone was delayed increased the duration of vasopressors by 52.8 minutes which was associated with a p-value less than 0.0001. Assessment of secondary outcomes showed a significant reduction in ICU and hospital length of stay in the early group. Uh, there was no significant difference in mortality, however. Um, also was no difference in the IV fluids administered in uh, the first 72 hours, the need for renal replacement therapy, or total insulin requirements. So interestingly enough, uh, in post-talk analysis, fluidrocortisone administration in the early group was associated with 
longer time to vasopressor or discontinuation. So 61.6 hours versus 36.7 hours with a p-value of 0.0056. There were similar findings seen in the general study population, so 81 hours versus 74 hours with the p-value of 0 0.0263. Uh, and that was, again, with glucocortisone administration. Um, there was no difference, however, when this outcome was analyzed in the late hydrocortisone group. So just some quick discussion points. Despite the patients in the early group having a higher risk of mortality at baseline with their decreased perfusion for their mean arterial pressure, uh, higher norepinephrine requirements, as well as increased lactate, there was still a significant difference found in vasopressor discontinuation, ICU length of stay, and hospital length of stay. So I think kind of the takeaway here is if you're thinking steroids in these patients earlier is definitely better. Uh, my question for you though, Nick, is what do you think about adjunct corticosteroids such as glucocortisone in the setting and do the findings presented in this article change how you feel about that? Yeah, it's a great question. Is that something that you all routinely use is the fludrocortisone with the hydrocortisone? I'm not going to lie in my limited experience. I've, I've seen it here and there, but honestly not. It's not very consistent, I'd say. Yeah, my experience is I, I, we, I've almost, outside of a few, a few, a handful of times, we almost never use it. Um, and I've even asked for, for those curious, I, I asked Alex Flannery the same question. Um, out of curiosity, um, the, I think the reason Paige phrased the question like that is because the two most positive corticosteroids and sepsis trials, ironically, all had fludrocortisone as an adjunct therapy um, now the, the researcher and statistician extraordinaire, Alex Flannery seems to think that that's a, a coincidence. And when they've looked at kind of the, the bioavailability of, of fludrocortisone and when in shock states, I think it was something around 4%. Um, so one twenty fifth of what you're hoping for. So that doesn't seem super ideal. Um, so hard to know what to make of that. So, um, yeah, that seems like, you know, an interesting finding, but my takeaway is like what you said of, yeah, the steroids, if you're going to use them, you try to use them upfront and early. Um, and I think that's where you're going to get the most kind of bang for your benefit, but kind of a really cool, really cool pharmacist driven article from, from some friends all across Florida, it looks like. Um, so shifting aggressive gears here, um, Jante from, from kind of treating sepsis here, um, Let's talk about treating a disease that may be rare to some of our non-ID colleagues um, that are listening. For sure. Um, so we have um, cryptococcal meningitis, which is an opportunistic infection that can cause more than 100,000 deaths in HIV patients each year. Um, following the advancing cryptococcal meningitis treatment for Africa trial, um, the World Health Organization actually updated the international guidelines for HIV-related disease in 2018 um, to recommending induction therapy with a one-week regimen of amphotericin B deoxycholate and flucytosine um, rather than two weeks in resource-limited settings. However, this regimen is still associated with a significant amount of anemia, kidney impairment, and electrolyte abnormalities. Um, so a study led by Joseph Jarvis um, wanted to determine if 
single dose liposomal infiltericin B combined with flucytosine and fluconazole for induction um, was non-inferior to the World Health Organization's um, recommended treatment for HIV-associated cryptococcal meningitis, um, looking at both efficacy and safety endpoints. This was an open-label phase three randomized trial that took place in sub-Saharan Africa, um, which has a high prevalence of HIV, as well as um, where a majority of our cryptococcal meningitis-related deaths have been um, recorded. Participants were included if they were HIV positive, older than 18 years old, and had a first episode of cryptococcal meningitis from 2018 to 2021. There was a total of 814 participants who were included in the study um, that were randomized to receive either the experimental regimen, um, which was a single dose of liposomal amphotericin B um, at 10 milligrams per kilogram, plus 14 days of flucytosine, 100 milligrams per kilogram per day, and fluconazole at 1,200 milligrams per day. Um, or they received the control group regimen, um, which is um, what the World Health Organization's recommended regimen is, um, of amphotericin B, deoxycholate, one milligram per kilogram per day, plus flucytosine, 100 milligrams per kilogram per day, for seven days, followed by fluconazole, 1,200 milligrams per day on days 8 through 14. Um, the single-dose liposomal amphotericin B came from a previous Phase two trial um, by the same group, comparing three short course regimens um, in their fun fungicidal activity. Um, the single dose was shown to be non-inferior to amphotericin B, um, three milligrams per kilogram per day, um, the 14-day course. Um, baseline characteristics of the participants were similar amongst both groups with a median age um, being 37 years and 60% being male. I'm looking at the primary endpoint of death at 10 weeks after randomization. And the mortality rate was 24.8% in the experiment group um, compared to 28.7% in the control group, having an absolute difference of uh, minus 3.9 percentage points, which was within their pre-specified 10, 10 percentage point non-inferiority margin. In addition to this, and maybe even the game changer of this study were the safety and adverse event results. Um, there were significant reductions in grade three and four adverse events in experimental groups compared to the control group. Um, one example is the development of anemia. It was 13.3% in the experiment group versus 39.1% in the control group, um, as well as less blood transfusions being needed in the experimental group. Overall, I think the safety and the adverse event profile support the already known fact that liposomal amphotericin B has a better toxicity profile compared to amphotericin B deoxycholate. Even though this study may be limited by its specific population, I do believe it provided great results for this to be studied in other locations and have the potential to shorten length of hospital stay in those resource-limited settings. In a resource-rich setting, such as the United States, the preferred regimen for HIV-related cryptococcal meningitis um, is the liposomal amphotericin B, 3 to 4 um, milligrams per kilogram daily, plus flucytosine, 100 milligrams per kilogram per day, for a minimum of two weeks, which is what I would say is fairly different um, to the recommendations in the resource-limited setting. My question for you, Nick, is what steps do you think would need to occur in order to see this single-dose regimen even being possible in a resource-rich setting? That's a great question. Um, I am not sure I have the answer for that. 
Um, cause the thing that, the thing that stood out to me in this trial, which was really well done is when you look at the supplementary appendix, the study monitoring with, because they're giving right, basically two and a half times the dose, um, in a, in a, in a, a one time, like they're getting a clinical review daily for two weeks. Then they have outpatient every two weeks. They're getting like urine electrolyte. They're getting all these things done. It just seems like a, a process, that being said, like this disease obviously kills. It has a high mortality rate and probably recurrence if you're not treated and things. So um, I think it's a great idea. I think I'll defer exclusively to like my much smarter ID friends on this issue. Um, I think it's, 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 I like that we're, you're talking about some of these things that like I haven't, it's nothing that I would have ever thought of um, in terms of the, alternate treatments and things it completely makes sense why they would have to do that um but it's really it's really cool to kind of see what you're doing trying to do the best for patients when uh, resources are a little limited here so i think that's really i think that's really cool that they're doing this um, especially in a group that has such a, a high a high rate of this still happening now kind of staying in the in the id realm here a little bit um Paige, talk to us about um, a specific class of, of drugs and their um, risk of a pretty big hospital-acquired infection. Yeah, sure. So, Clostridioides difficile, otherwise known as C. diff, uh, infections account for a sizable number of healthcare-associated infections in the U.S. Uh, as the most common cause of diarrhea in hospitalized patients, it's important for us to understand the risk factors associated with uh, C. diff infections and, um, so that we can identify who should be tested for C. diff and who may benefit from certain preventative measures. The IDSA C. diff guidelines do mention one risk factor of particular interest, namely the use of immunosuppressive medications, and this is due to suppressed immune function, so low serum, anti-C. difficile, IgM, and IgG, which can allow for colonization and infection. Uh, this is thought to go hand-in-hand hand with frequent antimicrobial exposure as well. The purpose of this work by Varma and colleagues was to discern whether the risk of C. diff infection is equal amongst different immunosuppressant classes. The primary outcome that they examined uh, was the incidence of community-acquired C. diff infection as detected by a C. diff toxin B gene PCR from an unformed stool specimen, which had to be sent within 72 hours of admission. Patients were determined to be on home immunosuppression based on medication reconciliation and admission. Immunosuppressant classes uh, that were examined included steroids, calcineurin inhibitors such as tacrolimus, cyclosporin, uh, and more. Other classes included anti-metabolites, uh, anti-TNF-alpha agents, anti-CD20 antibodies, and there was a kind of catch-all group for others, which some of uh, the classes included in the others category were interleukin inhibitors, ETLA4 inhibitors, GAT kinase inhibitors, and so on. Some of the statistical methods they utilized in this study, so multivariable logistic regression was used to identify the relationship between immunosuppression use and the risk for uh, community-acquired C. diff infection. They did some sensitivity analysis 
uh, to determine if a relationship existed between the number of immunosuppressants, the indication for immunosuppression, as well as uh, recent antibiotic use in outpatient care um, and the disinfection. So the results that they found, um, so over 10,000 patients were included, almost 11,000 were included, 16% uh, of them with active C. diff infection and 84% without. Uh, a greater proportion of patients with C. diff infection did use immunosuppressants relative to those without CDI. So this was 27% versus 22%, which uh, yielded a p-value less than 0.01. Patients with C. diff infection were more likely to have comorbidities, experienced prior hospitalizations, and also uh, used proton pump inhibitors or PPI. There was, however, no association between outpatient care and increased risk for uh, C. infection. Um, there was increased risk for community-acquired C. diff with multiple classes of immunosuppressants. So uh, with two classes, the adjusted odds ratio was 1.22. Three classes, the adjusted odds ratio was 1.53 and for immunosuppressant classes, uh, an adjusted odds ratio of 2.4. So after adjustment, however, uh, calcineurin inhibitors were the only immunosuppressant that was uh, independently associated with uh, C. infection. So the study hypothesized that immunosuppression class may impact the incidence of C. infection and drawing from the author's findings, it seems that the risk of C. infection is not distinctly impacted by um, one type of immunosuppressant, although modest increase was, um, sorry, modest increase of C. diff infection was seen with calcineurin use. Um, but it's more so impacted by the use of multiple immunosuppressant classes. So I thought that the study was strong and that it included a pretty large number of patients, as I mentioned, almost 11,000 patients. Um, and it was one of the first studies to really examine this concept. Uh, however, there is a risk of selection biases. Um, if there's a risk, perceived risk with immunosuppressants, immunosuppressed patients may be more likely to be tested for CDI uh, with less symptoms than those who are immunocompetent. So overall, I think the study serves to generate more hypotheses on the subject. Uh, personally, I'm excited for further exploration on this topic, specifically with dose-related risk and um, if there's any association of trough levels with uh, C. diff infection in agents that utilize uh, CK monitoring, such as Pecalimus. So that's kind of my take on it there, Nick. Yeah, it seems like this is the first of hopefully a few a few more studies. This is a really good retrospective um, study done completed in out of Columbia in, in New York, and um, you know, as we're starting to get more of these like multi center like pharmacy research groups, this feels like one of the next big studies. Is you know whether you're isolating it to a specific organ transplant. Um, you know, if you have a specific trough target, um, I, th I think that's really interesting. And like you said, it makes sense. A lot of the raw data, you know, you're going to be more likely to have C. diff if you're older. If you have more comorbidities, if you've been recently hospitalized, recent antibiotic use. So it kind of just confirms a lot of the things we know as well in a really big data set. And then also kind of really give us research ideas and targets um, to help narrow down as like our primary outcomes and, and things there. So yeah, I completely agree. Really, really good article and find there.
Um, now, Jante, we've kind of been out of your wheelhouse talking about adults here. So why don't why don't we come you would come back in and um, why don't you kind of lead us back into the peds world here? I can do that. I'll I'll dabble a little bit of crit care in it as well, just to, <laughs> to keep it keep it on track. Um, so here we have a study that, or not necessarily a study, but more so a review. It's a group of eight board certified pediatric pharmacists, all of which are well known in the pediatric world, and they have the credentials and publications to support their expertise. Um, they collaborated together to pick out what they deem significant guidelines, position statements. Um, review articles and primary literature of 2019 to 2020 um, for which were impactful in the pediatric pharmacy practice of eight different pediatric areas. Um, these included general peds, um, critical care, um, neurology and psychiatry, infectious disease, um, medica- medication safety, um, and then also one of my current interests, neonatology. Um, for those of us um, who, who are listening and maybe pursuing a PGY2 in pediatrics, um, these areas should sound familiar as um, these are the core competency areas of pharmacy practice um, that ASHP accredited programs must implement as part of our training experience. Um, this article was created with the goal of providing updates in the pediatric pharmacy practice um, to pediatric pharmacists as a way of learning about new practices within their scope or even learning about disease states or treatments outside their usual pediatric specialty. Um, At the conclusion of their literature search and voting, um, this paper included a total of 32 articles, um, 16 being guidelines or position statements, and the other 16 being reviews or primary literature. Um, Within each pediatric area, um, you'll find summaries written about each article um, included Follow by a quick excerpt of um, what the main takeaway was from the articles. Um, for example, if we look in the critical care section, um, the 2019 guideline update on traumatic brain injuries um, is summarized in which one of the recommendations is to administer 3% sodium chloride, um, 2 to 5 um, mils per kilogram over t- 10 to 20 minutes for increased ICP. In addition, it mentions appropriate sedatives and analgesics to use as well as the use of prophylactic anti-epileptics. If we move over into the neonatology section, um, there's a randomized control trial by Sharp and colleagues looking at levetiracetam versus phenobarbital for uh, neonatal seizures. Um, In the pharmacy takeaway, um, it's concluded that the better first-line agent is actually still debatable um, when when you're weighing the safety, efficacy, and um, its neurodevelopment impact. And then further moving to the infectious disease section, um, there's even a retrospective study included, which looked at parenteral antibiotic duration for um, bacteremic UTIs in young infants. The study is described in a similar structure to the, um, the ones mentioned before, with a key takeaway of the study supporting a reduction in days of antibiotic exposure. Um, other articles highlighted in this reading included the surviving sepsis guidelines for pediatrics, um, pediatric ALL guidelines from the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, um, prednisone versus dexamethasone for croup, and many other impactful articles. Um, this is a great idea that I'm sure many pediatric pharmacists are appreciative of and are hoping to see articles um, such as this in future issues of um, AJHP. 
Yeah, this is kind of similar to they do this with like critical care and emergency medicine pharmacists, like reviewing kind of the biggest trials of the year. I mean, these are these are the who's who in the pediatric world. It would appear as if the they comment that they have the mean years of experience is fifteen for each author, um, which is really impressive. Um, I, I I enjoyed. I feel like it's just got pearls throughout. You know, pediatric and neonatal kind of clinical pearls. And John, I feel like since the this list was basically taken from your required readings. Sounds like this is going to turn into maybe like a love hate relationship. Sounds like you're in the early, you're in like the new part of of the residency. Everything is great, things are good. So I'm glad we're still there. Um, but I'm I'm wondering how uh, if it's ever gonna if it's gonna take a turn. But all in all, you know this is a a really good AJHP article um, that just kind of gives basically to the peds and non-peds world, a good update on what's on what's been happening. So um, really cool there. Now, Paige, we made it. It's our it's our last study in the six pack. So why don't you why don't you bring us home um, looking at a uh, study about ischemic strokes? Yeah, sure. So endovascular thrombectomy is a gold standard for large vessel occlusion. Uh, acute ischemic stroke for the AHA and ASA. There's a large subset of uh, patients, so about 71%, who received this intervention and have successful reperfusion, which is assessed by digital subtraction and geography uh, and is clearly demonstrated in previous randomized studies. Only 27% of patients receiving endovascular thrombectomy were shown, however, to be disability-free at 90 days. So, it's been postulated that a uh, normal angiogram is not always indicative of adequate reperfusion of the microcirculation. So the purpose of the CHOICE trial was to evaluate the efficacy and safety of intraarterial alteplase in conjunction with thrombectomy compared to placebo with thrombectomy. This was a multi-center phase 2B randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial that took place in Catalonia, Spain. All included patients had angiographic documentation of success, which was defined as an ETICI or extended thrombolysis and cerebral infarction score of 2B50 or higher. So this seems to be an accepted or common uh, scoring system in the literature. Uh, 2B50 ETICI is an angiographic target, target for endovascular treatment and it equates to an MTE of 2B. Uh, included were adult patients who had to have had large vessel occlusion in the anterior, middle, or posterior cerebral arteries treated with thrombectomy within 24 hours following their last known well, and a post-thrombectomy score of 2B50, which was judged by local investigators. Eligible patients had to have been able to carry out their usual daily activities without support prior to their stroke. Patients were excluded if they had contraindications to systemic TPA uh, per local and national guidelines, except the uh, time to therapy parameter. If they had an NIH score greater than 25 or complete recovery in the angiography suite during their procedure. 
The primary efficacy outcome was proportion of patients with a score of zero or one on the modified Rankin scale at 90 days. Uh, and the enrollment for this study was uh, impacted by placebo availability and a slow enrollment rate, which is thought to be due to COVID, unfortunately. So this study was prematurely discontinued at about 60% of its enrollment target. So uh, 112 patients ended up being included in the analysis. And so this was from September 2018 to May of 2021. So 113 patients received the study treatment, which was intraarterial ultraplace at a dose of 0.225 mg per pig. Uh, 100 patients were needed in each group to meet power. However, obviously, they did not meet this. Um, based on local investigator assessment, 58% uh, of patients had an ETG score of 2B50-67 and 42% had an e-techie score of uh, 2C slash 3 at the time of randomization. The baseline characteristics of these patients were largely well balanced between the two groups, with both groups having a median NIH score of 14 and a time from stroke onset to treatment um, was a little bit different between the two groups, so 5.25 in the treatment group and nearly six hours in the placebo group. Um, 38% of the treatment group had received uh, systemic alteplase previously, while 31% in the placebo group had received systemic alteplase. The treatment with intraarterial alteplase was associated with a favorable outcome, so the score of zero or one on the modified Rankin scale at 90 days. Uh, so this occurred in 59% of patients in the alteplase group and about 40.4% of patients in the placebo group. So with this adjusted risk difference, about 18.4% uh, and a confidence interval of 0.3 to 36.4% with a p-value of uh, 0.047. So several secondary outcomes that were evaluated, um, such as the uh, ETQ score, so improved ETQ score, MRS at uh, 90 days, infarct expansion ratio, and more uh, were not found to be different between the two groups. Uh, there was no difference found in the quality of life score at 90 days between the two groups. Um, and so I guess kind of to, to round it out, since there was, uh, or I'm sorry, excuse me, I just wanted to mention that there was no large numerical difference between the uh, differences in the safety outcomes between the two groups, although they didn't provide uh, p-values for that information. So seemingly no striking between group differences in the study. However, it's important to consider that it was stopped early. So Nick, I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are about the use of intraarterial alteplase in large vessel occlusion ischemic stroke. We're still looking for that perfect, perfect stroke treatment. Um, I mean, I, it, it's all about like, do you have neuro IR like physicians who are going to do this, right? Because we're not giving intraarterial anything. A um, couple things. So uh, I don't know if there's any Vance Joy listeners, but finding out that this was um, record or a take place in Catalonia, Spain. He literally has a song called Hey Catalonia, I was just getting to know ya. So that's all I could think of as I was looking at this trial. Um, but the other thing that stood out was 
they had difficulty obtaining the placebo and that was what actually caused this to like not happen like that caused that and covid caused like the trial to kind of be stopped um i thought it was kind of interesting the placebo that they used was arginine and polysorbate 80 polysorbate 80 famous for its um hypotension induction with IV amiodarone. But um, all in all, I think this is more data for really high specialized stroke centers. And I think for you and I, I don't think this changes any bit of what we do or what I think about really with with our um, ischemic stroke management. The only, it's like the opposite of like, you know how the Heineken has like the five pack. This is like the seven pack. We're giving you one extra here because the other thing that I just wanted to highlight for a minute is um, the New England Journal of Medicine. They, they um, have a new review article that is basically about renal replacement therapy. So they have updated like their 2012 review article um, that talks about, it kind of shows for our like visual learners, um, it shows the different modalities of like CRT, hemodialysis and that kind of stuff. And so it's, it's basically an update of that. So that's something that you um, share with learners. You keep that on the zip drive. Um, it's definitely a good one. I mean, it's, it shows the, the differences between like CVVH, CVVHD. It shows like it's got a table that discusses like what would our normal blood flow rates are. Um, so just a really, a really good kind of uh, thing to save on the zip drive here. Okay. We just finished the six pack of studies here. Now, Jante, go ahead and go ahead and have a seat for a sec. We'll come back to you in just a minute. Uh, Paige, come on back with the uh, lost in my mind section. Let's talk about some neuro studies here and kind of lead us out with um, some VTE prophylaxis in a high risk group of pop patients. Yeah, definitely. So, in patients with traumatic brain injury, there's kind of a balancing act between the risk of VTE development and risk of progression to intracranial hemorrhage. Although there is evidence to support the early initiation of anticoagulation for VTE prophylaxis, there's variability in practice as early prophylaxis is sometimes held until stable CT scan. This study by Byrne and colleagues was designed to evaluate early initiation of pharmacologic venous thromboembolism, or VTE, prophylaxis after urgent neurosurgical interventions for traumatic brain injury, or TBI, uh, and the impact that has on thromboembolic complications and intracranial complications. So the study found that prophylaxis delay, which was about median of three days, was associated with an increased uh, odds of VTE, and earlier prophylaxis was associated with an increased risk of repeated neurosurgical intervention. Additionally, low molecular weight heparin versus unfractionated heparin was associated with lower odds of VTE with an adjusted odds ratio of 0.64 and a confidence interval of 0.49 to 0.84. Most notably, early prophylaxis was associated with higher mortality among patients who underwent intracranial under or drain procedures with each additional day of prophylaxis delay, um, or I'm sorry, with each additional day of prophylaxis delay being associated with uh, decreased odds of death. So this retrospective study does highlight the importance of VTE prophylaxis in this population, 
However, early initiation of this intervention, if pursued, uh, should be proceeded with caution. Um, I would additionally note to kind of add to that caution, this data is um, from 2012 to 2016, which is also, also worth kind of considering there as well. Yeah, it's it's a pretty big balance. I think this is as as a retrospective study. I th I think it's kind of good to keep in mind. Um, I don't think this is necessarily changing practice habits because I know you know most of the trauma teams that I work with, we're trying to get VT prophylaxis started sooner, not later, um, in those kind of scenarios here. Um, now, kind of staying um, a little bit on that same. Uh, realm here when we're still staying in this neurosection here. Uh, the next study here, Paige, talk to us about a, you know, a group of, of researchers trying to create a really novel kind of scale. Yeah, so uh, as we know, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest had a very high mortality rate with one large contributing factor being hypoxic ischemic neurologic injury. Targeted temperature management, or TTM, during the first 24 hours following return of spontaneous circulation is thought to reduce this neurologic injury. However, the adaptation of TTM seems to vary between ICUs. Um, this retrospective cohort study by Chen and colleagues sought to create a risk score to evaluate individual out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Uh, risk at early admission following targeted temperature management and their um, neurologic status at the time of discharge. So they developed what they call the slant score, which ranges from 0 to 21 points and was born using five variables in a weighted fashion, those being uh, the initial non-shockable rhythm, leukocyte count, uh, whether it was below 4 or greater than 12 following TTM, the total dose of epinephrine that was administered, um, if there was a lack of CPR, and the duration of resuscitation. So this, sorry, excuse me, the slant score um, did show some ability to predict poor neurologic outcome, as well as in hospital mortality by way of the um, Cochrane-Armitage trend test. Uh, however, the clinical applicability of this tool um, kind of new. So I'd say it requires further investigation before this is going to be adapted and not really validated outside of kind of this um, study here. So Yeah, it's a it's an interesting, definitely a thought provoking study. It's it's a it's a scoring system I haven't heard of, but I know um, there's a constant sense to get a better feel for what our neurologic outcomes are going to be in this group of out-of-hospital arrest, you know, cardiac arrest patients. Um, so possibly more to come here on that. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. Um, definitely something for kind of our ED and our, our pre-hospital colleagues um, to keep an eye on here. Um, now, Paige, go ahead and close us out in the loss of my mind section here, talking about um, using opioids in a, a unique group of patients. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Ashish Thakur uh, posted a, or posted, published a viewpoint in uh, JAMA based on the use of short-acting opioids for hospitalized patients who have opioid use disorder. So 
Dr. Zucker expands on the way that opioid use disorder can impact the way patients with this uh, condition interact with the healthcare system. So from avoiding care altogether to being at increased risk for overdose following discharge, these patients face unique challenges that all providers should be aware of. Uh, Dr. Zucker presents the idea of short-acting opioid utilization and hospitalized patients with known opioid use disorder as a means of pain control while kind of saving away those withdrawal cravings and other potential complications with opioid use disorder. Um, he also mentions how this practice may also decrease the need for patients to self-medicate, which we can acknowledge is positive from a, a safety perspective in these patients. Dr. Zucker also mentions and addresses kind of how this might be seen as a potential reinforcement of addiction, um, but there are potential benefits to this practice that we can consider, such as controlled pain, um, leaving patients with one less reason to leave against medical advice. Um, and he also provides anecdotes to which this practice could have been utilized and um, may have benefited this practice. I personally think that this concept does warrant a little bit more attention and further exploration. Um, it seems interesting as a tactic to kind of destigmatize substance use disorders and how they impact patient interaction with the healthcare system and, and ways that people seek care. But Nick, I'm interested to kind of hear what you think about this practice. I love that you highlighted this, this kind of opinion piece. I think it was really, I think it's very smart and kind I think it was, you know, filled with very sad and personal stories. And as I'm reading it, right, because, you know, like you were saying, one of the big takeaways is that basically these patients, it was a vicious cycle. They didn't want to go to the hospital because they were getting their pain, you know, they weren't getting their pain treated while they were there. So they leave AMA, their stuff would get worse, right? I think all of us who have been in the hospital have seen that cycle firsthand, and they're talking about how, you know, they're not getting adequate pain treatment. And I'm just thinking, like, what's the difference between opioid use disorder treatment and alcohol withdrawal syndrome treatment other than just the stigma behind it? Because um, just like an alcohol withdrawal, right, you have to use doses of benzos that you're probably less comfortable with than, than, than many other scenarios. It's the same thing in opioid use disorders, right? You have all these receptors that are downregulated. Um so that was my kind of big takeaway. I, I think it's a great piece. I'm not sure that this is necessarily going to change the practice per se, but I think it's kind of enlightening, just gives you a little bit of, of perspective um, from the other side, right? I think us as healthcare providers kind of see one side, um, not necessarily wrong, you know, wrong one way or the other, just a, a different viewpoint. Um, and then kind of on that same, this same realm of things, um, Again, I know what's the one rule when I supposed to talk about COVID, but it's it's not a study. I I, I want to highlight it not necessarily as something like everyone should read, but just more as like kind of like an FYI to kind of like discuss the findings a little bit. Right, all of us know how hard it was being in the ICU during COVID, processing all of that stuff. Um, and I, this prospective French study that was published in JAMA confirms that it's probably the same for the patient's family members. Right, they basically did this questionnaire and follow up and found that almost the family members had almost the double the amount of PTSD for their patients that had COVID ARDS versus just standard ARDS patients. One of the big differences being that, you know, they, the COVID patients couldn't see their family members. So 
I say that only like we're still figuring out how this is going to affect everybody. So, you know, keep giving people grace, love, thanks for showing up kind of things, right? Be kind to people. That was why, that's why I wanted to highlight that there. Now, we're hitting up a brand new topic here, right? We have a PGY2 pediatric pharmacy resident. Of course, we got to have a pediatric study. So we're stealing the title from uh, my good friend Adele, When We Were Young. So Jante, leading kind of into this, into this peds um, subsection here, and we teased this earlier, let's go on back and let's talk about the use of balanced and unbalanced solutions, but let's talk about it in a completely different group of patients. Yeah, like you like you mentioned, I kind of already discussed kind of the PLUS trial and um, the outcomes from that study. Um, so now let's kind of look at balanced versus unbalanced fluids um, with the same question in the pediatric population. Um, so a prior systematic review and, and meta-analysis had determined that there was no benefit seen with balanced fluids when looking at mortality and AKI um, in pediatric populations. However, we know that studies are few and mortality is already believed to be significantly lower in the critically ill children compared to adults. Um, so Lair and colleagues actually performed a systematic review and meta-analysis comparing the balanced versus unbalanced fluids um, in critically ill children. But instead of focusing on mortality and AKI, um, they believe looking at metabolic acidosis as an outcome would be more appropriate. So 13 studies total met inclusion. However, only three of the randomized trials were analyzed for the primary outcome, um, which revealed statistical significance in favor of balanced fluids for showing improvement of our blood pH and bicarb values in the critically ill children after 4 to 12 hours of fluid bolus therapy. No differences were seen in chloride levels, um, AKI, renal replacement therapy, or mortality. They do identify limitations, such as having a small sample size, um, some included studies having higher bias risk, and the clinical relevance of the primary outcome. However, their results do further support the need of a larger randomized control trial um, to determine um, really if the benefits of balanced fluids outweigh, um, yet again, their barriers such as cost and accessibility. Man, it's kind of a sad day for for balanced fluids here. Jonte, you're really bursting bursting our bubbles here. Like we, we invite you on. I don't think I was I don't think I was mean to you, but here you are. You're just you're you're beating up our balanced fluids here. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, I mean I it there's three randomized trials, right? There's just gonna be less studies in in pediatrics than adults. Um, like I, I have in my notes written, it's not not great data. Now, that being said, I, I'd be curious, the peds world, knowing the quality of this, and you know, they're not getting 3,000, you know, 5,000 patient studies. So this might be high quality data. Uh, either way, um, not a great day. Not a great day. You know what? Uh, let's change the subject here, uh, Jante. And then let's, let's um, why don't you give a, an introduction into Another set of guidelines we should all be familiar with in a new group of patients. 
Yeah, so um, this was supported by the American College of Critical Care Medicine. Um, there was a task force of experts from various disciplines um, who created a comprehensive guideline for the management of the pediatric population um, in the critical care setting um, that was released at the beginning of this year. Um, the focus was on um, seven domains um, in critical care, um, some of which included pain, sedation, agitation, um, neuromuscular blockade, delirium, and early mobility. Um, these guidelines were actually short-term tandem. Um, one could actually say that this is pretty much the pediatric version of the PADIS guidelines um, that's used in the adult setting. The task force was able to provide um, 44 recommendations and five good practice statements. Um, as we know, many practices performed in pediatrics are generally extrapolated from the adult population. However, these guidelines uh, made sure to note that none of the recommendations were made exclusively based on adult literature. In summary, um, there was major focus on utilizing validated tools for assessment and monitoring prior to intervening. Um, one example would be the preschool and pediatric confusion assessment methods, um, which is a tool that's used to monitor um, delirium. Um, another focus was strong support in protocolizing um, practices such as sedation and analgesia management. And then uh, finally, the use of non-pharmacologic measures and uh, using adjunctive or synergistic therapies, um, all with rationale supported by available literature. Um, in addition, there's also a supplemental digital content to complement the guidelines um, with more details surrounding the assessment tools, um, the pharmacologic agents that could be used um, with dosing guidance, as well as um, trials um, that the recommendations in the guidelines are based on. Um, and finally, um, the group also acknowledges um, not being able to answer some clinical questions that do arise in the pediatric critical care setting, um, but these questions are um, included in the guidelines um, to more so encourage future research um, and further increase uh, um, the literature that um, we do have now, currently. Yeah, keep educating us. This is great. It's something that I always look at. Listeners know. So the guidelines here, we got three pharmacist authors on it. And uh, Peter Johnson was actually in the review article in the six-pack of studies. So a very rare two-for-one appearance on the on the literature review pod here. Um, now, as a as primary a someone in adult critical care, the, uh, some differences that stood out to me and might stand out to some of the other um, adult kind of pharmacists, they do not suggest a daily interruption in sedation, which is a big change. Um, I like that they specifically comment on a propofol rate to stay under to avoid pris, which is, it's so specific, which the critical care pharmacist in me just loves. 67 mics per kilo per minute, not 65 and not 70, 67. Um, they recommend propofol to wean off other sedatives and analgesics, right? I think all of us are used to using dexmedetomidine. Dextabate um, is a term people might use, but I guess since dexmedetomidine is such a first-line agent in the pediatric world, it makes sense that, that you would use a different one to wean off. Um, and then the other thing that stood out to me in the guidelines was there was a whole section on iatrogenic withdrawal or basically tolerance and withdrawal that can come from just being on these infusions for a while, which... 
I think is something that all of us as pharmacists, it can be the bane of your existence sometimes trying to get your team as your as the patient who's been on midazolam or propofol or fentanyl for three weeks and we're turning it off in 24 to 48 hours. All of us know it's not a great plan. It's nice that these guidelines kind of actually do a, a whole addressing on it. So I like it. And they even make it, they kind of make it their own. It's the it's the pandemic guidelines. Um, it's a little close to pandemic for my liking though, John. It's, a, it's just a little too close. Um, now let's go ahead. We've been focusing on kind of the inpatient setting. Um, we've hit a, a, a lot of great points. Um, now let's kind of talk about, um, some outpatient treatment and, and let us know. So you've been breaking myths here. Okay. So is shorter always better? All right, go. I like that. <laughs> so, um, the pediatric guidelines by the pediatric infectious disease society, as well as the infectious disease society of America, um, recommend treating non-complicated pneumonia with antibiotics in the outpatient setting for a duration of 10 days. Um, but they do acknowledge that shorter courses may be just as effective. Um, so several previous studies have demonstrated non-inferiority of um, shorter treatment durations in children. In the adult setting, um, shorter courses of antibiotic treatment have already become a thing, um, with five days of treatment usually being adequate. Um, the scout cap trial um, here by Williams and colleagues was a randomized control trial um, that looked at short versus standard course outpatient antibiotic therapy for community-acquired pneumonia in children. The primary endpoint was a composite score, including their clinical response, um, resolution of symptoms, and antibiotic-associated adverse effects. And subsequently, they also looked at how duration could have an impact on um, resistance in antibiotics. In their results, um, they concluded that a five-day antibiotic strategy was superior to a 10-day strategy um, with similar clinical response um, and antibiotic-associated adverse effects, as well as some data pointing toward a reduction of the resistance um, with the shorter antibiotic exposure. The study population was limited to ages six years old and younger um, who had no other underlying conditions. Um, my current institution actually discharges patients with uncomplicated pneumonia on a seven-day course. Um, but who knows, the additional information provided by this study um, could support looking at five-day course treatments in patients um, who would have fit the inclusion criteria of this trial. So my thoughts on hearing the seven days after being in the hospital for a while is if you're unsure... And one, the top end is 10 and the bottom is five. You're just going to split the difference and go with seven. And that's, <laughs> I wonder if that's how we got it. Um, yeah, the statistics in this study are super complicated. That's one thing that stood out to me. I'm not even going to begin to try to go through them in an audio format. I don't want any of our, my favorite listeners and friends of the pod to wreck. Um, but it looks like they were using standard of cares, like amoxicillin, Augmentin or ceftonir, it appeared to be high dose from what I could gather there. So, um, all right, one for three, we're keeping some of the some of the good things true, and shorter is better. Add this to the to the running list of of shorter is better antibiotic indications. Um, Jonte, that was fun. A little when we were young pediatric section here, um, but Paige, come on back for the CV section. Don't go breaking my heart. Now let's get started with. 
course, you can't talk about CV without tossing some DOAX in here. So let's talk about um, looking at adverse effects with DOAX. Yeah, so uh, as we know, BPE or venous thromboembolism is often associated with mortality and recurrence, and several oral anticoagulant options exist from, as we mentioned, DOAX to our trusty old vitamin K antagonist, warfarin. Um, so many studies exist kind of showing DOAC efficacy in the prevention of recurrent VTE. However, there's little data that compares DOAX to warfarin specifically in the um, extended treatment phase, so that 6 to 12 month period. So in this retrospective study, uh, Parwar and colleagues compare outpatient prescription of apixaban, rivaroxaban, and warfarin after 90 days of anticoagulation and outcomes for hospitalization due to recurrent VTE, mortality, as well as major bleeding. Uh, the data derived for this study, so the patients included, um, was from a fee-for-service Medicare um, database from 2009 to 2017, as well as two commercial health insurance uh, databases from 2004 to 2018. So. 43,000 patients were included who are pres prescribed warfarin, um, 12,468 patients who are prescribed rivaroxaban, and 9,167 patients who are receiving apixaban. After a propensity score matching of these patients, the rate of hospitalization for recurrent BTE was lower for apixaban compared to warfarin, but rates were not significantly different between apixaban and rivaroxaban or rivaroxaban and warfarin. Rates of hospitalization for major bleeding were not different between each of these agents either. So my kind of takeaway here is there's many reasons to have a preference for DOAX as compared to warfarin, but I think this exploratory analysis just kind of supports this, although only modestly with regard to reduced rate of hospitalizations when you know, at least looking specifically at a pixaban versus warfarin, but I'm interested to hear what you think, Nick. A pixaban is king. Put the crown on, put the crown on our king. Um, that is my takeaway here. Like, I think it's funny that you said trusty old warfarin, because I agree. That's like what I think of it as, but like, you're not calling the, the brand new pair of shoes you got your trusty old like shoes, right? Your trusty old shoes are the ones that's got like eight holes in it, but somehow it doesn't let anything in. Like it's just good enough. And that's what Warfarin is, right? It's just good enough. If you can't do the DOAX, that will do, but it, should, it, it is not first line. I also think it's funny when we, when there's Warfarin studies, but we don't have INR values. And again, they're getting this all from hospital databases, but like Obviously, if their INR is not therapeutic, it's not going to work very well. So I was, it, I think that always is a rate limiting step for me as well. So DOAX, we're getting more and more, and and Apixaban is uh, is still doing its thing. Now we're talking about kind of VTEs. There, one kind of um, interesting study out of out of Germany looked at uh, thrombolytics for uh, intermediate risk PEs. So if you're at a, a you know, hospital or health system that doesn't have an IR suite where they're doing thrombectomies or catheter-directed thrombolysis, um, you know, they looked at a cohort, like a match cohort. It's about 55 patients. Almost 40% of them received a thrombolytic. And, and these results were positive. Basically, zero patients had, a composite, had the composite outcome of death and or hemodynamic compromise. So 
know, something to tuck away if uh, if you're looking for a little more aggressive PE treatments, and but you're not having the the IR kind of suites um, and things getting built in your institution. Um, now, Paige, come on back and let's talk about um, the use of antiarrhythmics in cardiac arrest. Yeah, so um, Rahimi and colleagues published this uh, post-talk analysis in um, JAHA. So this is a post-talk analysis of the Rock Alps or Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium Amiodarone Lidocaine Placebo Trial um, to examine the association of time to treatment with return of spontaneous circulation at hospital arrival. So the Rock Rock Alps trial uh, kind of concluded that neither amiodarone nor lidocaine resulted in significantly higher rate of survival or favorable neurologic outcomes as compared to uh, placebo in patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Um, so in this post-hoc analysis, the logistic regression was used to analysis time from 911 call to administration of antiarrhythmic or placebo. So this included amiodarone 300 milligrams or lidocaine 120 milligrams or, again, as I mentioned, placebo, um, and the relationship here with return of spontaneous circulation. The number of patients achieving ROSC uh, decreased with um, increased time to antiarrhythmic or placebo administration. Um, shorter time to administration seemed to yield a higher proportion of ROSC in patients who received amiodarone as compared to placebo, uh, but later administration reduced the odds of ROSC compared to placebo. So although this is a post-hoc analysis and is obviously intended to be hypothesis generating, it seems that when amiodarone is the drug of choice in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, uh, time is of the essence. So However, um, more prospective research is kind of required in this area to really draw those concrete conclusions on the topic. Yeah, this is a retrospective study from our friends across the border up north in Canada. And um, I mean, some things that stood out to me, I mean, time from call, calling EMS to getting the drug was basically 17 and a half minutes across the board. I mean, that seems really good. That seems really good for our pre-hospital care that that's happening and we're getting the right doses and things. Now, again, stickler for doses here. I think it's weird that they did 120 milligrams of lidocaine here. You know, our Apigex are 100 milligrams. So I'm going to be pretty annoyed when somebody wants me to get 120 out based on this study. So that's the only, the only thing that was a little bit surprising, but again, different countries, so maybe different availability, things like that. Um, yeah, kind of like you said, time is of the essence. The later you wait to give amio, the worse things that happen. Um, so interesting here. Um, I think it more highlights the awesome pre, pre-hospital care that um, patients are getting up in, up in Canada here. Now let's kind of stay, Paige, and close us out. Um, staying in kind of that, that shock kind of state um, and talk to us about kind of our cardiogenic shock management and monitoring. Yeah, so this postdoc analysis was published by Marbach and colleagues uh, in uh, JAHA uh, based on the Do Re Mi trial. So 
um, management of cardiogenic shock kind of continues to develop with increasing availability of interventions. As we know, there's mechanical circulatory support devices and such. Um, the Society for Coronary Angiography and Intervention, or SKY, um, has a cardiogenic uh, shock classification system, which has been validated and shows that there's a, a good relationship between increasing sky shock stage and mortality. Lactate is a commonly used laboratory parameter that's used, you know, in the sky shock staging as well as for prognosis of several shock states with limited evidence in cardiogenic shock. Early lactate clearance and time to lactate normalization are kind of adjacent markers that have also been studied in the context of cardiogenic shock and their prognostic value. So the double-blind randomized control trial, the DOREMI trial, or WDMEN as compared with milarone in the treatment of cardiogenic shock, um, these patients had to have a lactate of at least two. Um, multivariable logistic regression of these patients revealed that complete lactate clearance, percent lactate clearance, and percent lactate clearance per hour were all independently associated with survival, uh, with complete lactate clearance being kind of the strongest predictor of in-hospital survival in patients with cardiogenic shock. So I think this post-hoc analysis supports the use of lactate clearance as a, a strong prognostic indicator in cardiogenic shock and um, could potentially be used as an endpoint in, in future research. But Nick, I'm kind of curious, you know, what do you think we'll see in the future with the use of lactate? Is it going to be similar to how we use it in septic shock or what do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. That's where I see it going. I think it's probably used like that a little bit to begin with, but I think they're probably just going to get some good data to be able to, to look at that. And the do Me study was really, really well done. Um, prospective study looking at our inotrope therapy. So even though this was like a post hoc analysis of it, this was still a really well designed and well done study. Um, I don't know. Paige, I'm sure you validated the um, lactate clearance equation. I'll tell you what, as I looked at it, um, I felt like I went back to like AP, like stats or calculus. I'm going to have to take their word on uh, if that equation is correct. But the other big thing is that like, they're, they they trended the lactate levels sooner here. I mean, the previous study, the IABP shock two study started at eight hours we know if someone's in bad shock for eight hours, bad things might happen, right? So they looked at the levels earlier. And the other thing that stood out is they included sick patients, right? I mean, Paige mentioned the the classification and um, kind of system and all the patients they included were CD and E. They excluded the less sick people. So again, as we're, as we're trying to apply this to our to our sick cardiogenic shock patients, they certainly did everything they could to, to look at it. So uh, more to come here. Um, I think it was a really kind of really cool study to highlight, especially as we're thinking of monitoring these patients. Um, now, we got one last study in the Don't Go Breaking My Heart section. And this is, I'm, I'm going to get a little bit on a soapbox here. And we got, I have a little bit of, it's always kind of, I've had an issue with this. And now that um, I have some friends who published this in the Annals of Pharmacotherapy. I feel like I can finally talk about it here. You know, when we're thinking of our gold standard treatment of hypertension or our um, guideline-directed medical therapy, ACEs are 
I don't know why we are still doing ACE inhibitors first line when we when the ARBs have gone generic, shooting heart failure, that's not even the drug you should be on, right? The ARNIs is what we should be on. So I, when people come in there, they have angioedema, 10% of people have this dry cough that they can't get rid of. Like I am on team, why is anyone getting prescribed lisinopril when Losartan is on cheap lists? Um, I feel like, you know, verbal meme when it's like, uh, ACE ARBs are greater than ACEs. Tell me I'm wrong. I'm sitting at that table. So I want people to convince me that I'm wrong. Um, but I like that we had a opinion piece, um, uh, from some pharmacist colleagues, um, out of Massachusetts, actually that also agree. So thank you friends. We appreciate that now. All right. Rant over. I'm away from back of the table. Jante, come on back. It's the favorite part of the episode. We're going to the front of the fridge. Um, and take us through our first study looking at the opioid antagonist naloxone. Yeah, so um, this was a retrospective cross-sectional study by Thompson and colleagues um, that looked at safety, efficacy, and cost of 0.4 milligrams versus 2 milligrams of intranasal naloxone for opioid overdose um, in two counties in the state of Michigan. Um, the authors um, reviewed records of patients in two different neighboring counties in which one utilized a lower dosing, um, 0.4 milligram protocol, while the other um, used a higher dosing, the 2 milligram protocol of intranasal naloxone. Um, the only exclusion was the receipt of naloxone um, by some other route aside from intranasal um, prior to the first dose of that intranasal um, naloxone dose. Um, 94 patients in the lower dose group um, were compared with 124 in the group that was receiving the higher dose. Um, they both had similar baseline characteristics. Um, the lower dose group actually received a mean initial dose of 0.48 milligrams of naloxone, and the higher dose group um, received a mean initial dose of 1.77 milligrams. Um, so looking at outcomes, there was no statistically significant difference seen um, in response to the initial dose, um, the proportion of patients that were requiring redosing, or the total number of doses um, by any route. Um, they did see a difference in the route um, per se if they needed to have a redose. Um, so with the higher dose patient, um, if they were redosed, it was um, mostly by intramuscular route, where with the lower dose patient, um, if they were needing a redose, um, they would receive um, more by the intranasal route. In addition, um, there was a higher rate of adverse effects that were documented in the higher dose group um, with 29% um, versus 2% in the lower dose group. Cost-wise, um, the 0.4 milligram dosing was 79% cheaper compared to the 2 milligram dosing um, when they looked at average wholesale price per dose. So I was just curious, um, Nick, um, if you had any thoughts on the dosings here and if you've seen um, any other intranasal dosings um, besides this, the, the 2 milligrams. Yeah, this seems like a unique, really unique study, um, especially as we're using this more and more frequently in the um, EMS and outpatient world. I think this is a great um, kind of uh, thought-provoking idea, right? I mean, I love the um, 
publishing of this, you know, but it's about 200 patients, right? And I'm used to doing the, right, the two milligrams um, that, that I think almost everyone listening has done. And I know a lot that, you know, there are some unique places that do really low doses and titrate up. So I think the more kind of options that we have in data, not only does that help us create protocols, but then when we're dealing with inevitable drug shortages, right, that can help us kind of temporarily, right, maybe we can do temporarily 0.4 intranasal or something like that. So um, really cool out of our uh, our friends up up north in, uh, in Michigan. Now, it would not be a literature review series if we didn't talk again about some antibiotics in sepsis. So, um, Jante, bring us back and talk about a, a study that looked at impact of time to administration. Yeah. So, um, we know that sepsis can be life threatening. Um, it's not identified and, um, poor outcomes have been shown with delayed administration of antibiotics. Um, early warning systems, or EWS, have been integrated into electronic medical record dashboards um, at various healthcare systems to assist with identifying patients um, who are admitted and at risk of sepsis. Um, there have been studies to evaluate the implementation of these early warning systems. However, most are in a pre- and post-intervention design um, in the emergency department. And there have not been any randomized trial designs to kind of further strengthen um, the conclusions from these. So Tara Beachy and colleagues performed a randomized controlled quality improvement initiative, um, comparing a standard care group to a standard care plus the visible sepsis early warning alerts at a single center ED in Ohio. In the standard care group, the EWS was silent, um, but it timestamped in this group. Um, whereas in the intervention group, an alert would trigger on the dashboard of the EMR, um, as well as send an alert um, to the ED pharmacist. This study took place from August 16 to December the 16th of 2019. Um, there was a total of 313 patients that were randomized to the standard care group and 285 that were randomized to the intervention group. Um, there was a shorter time to antibiotic administration from ED arrival in the intervention group. Um, with a median of 2.3 hours versus three hours in the standard care group. There was also a greater number of days alive and out of the hospital, um, with there being 23.1 um, versus the 22.5 days. Um, there was no differences seen in frequency of antibiotic administration, fluid resuscitation, um, or C. diff infection, as well as no adverse or unanticipated events that were reported. Um, I will say that the pharmacist felt as though the EWS alert only took up 10% of clinical effort um, and felt as though pharmacists um, had the most impact with um, expediting um, the antibiotic preparation and administration throughout this process. Yeah, the thing that stood out to me most was that they thought it only imp increased their workload or only took up 10% of their day. Um, love that, love that for them. Love that ER. Um, if I can only imagine what my day would look like with that alert. Um, and the other thing to point out is that, right. The, the comparator group still got their antibiotics, um, at a median time of three hours. Um, and we know that that's kind of the standard cutoff unless you're really, 
hypotensive or things. And so, um, I mean, I think it's great. It makes sense that the more visible it is, the more likely you're going to create awareness to it. I also love that that didn't create like a landslide of antibiotic orders and everyone getting crazy sepsis boluses and things like that. So, um, kind of shows a proof of concept, both efficacy and safety wise. So hopefully they're meeting more metrics um, and more people are getting those antibiotics within that three hour mark. Um, so great, great thing to highlight there. Um, now Jante closed out the front of the fridge talking to us about um, some hyperkalemia treatment. So patients who um, present to the ED with hyperkalemia um, may require some type of treatment in order to stabilize, in order to be stabilized. Um, one temporary option of reducing potassium in these patients is the use of IV insulin um, to shift some of the potassium intracellularly, while also using other modalities to remove potassium from the body. When utilizing insulin, there is the potential of causing iatrogenic hypoglycemia and an even higher risk in those with renal dysfunction. A reduction of insulin from 10 units to 5 units is recommended and generally accepted um, in this population. Um, Finder and colleagues saw that most studies combined all stages of CKD, possibly seeing a greater skew of data due to those with end-stage renal disease, and thus sought to compare 5 units versus 10 units of insulin for hyperkalemia in patients with moderate renal dysfunction only. This was a single-center retrospective study um, that included patients who received IV insulin for hyperkalemia um, through an order set, and they had moderate renal dysfunction, um, which they defined by the CKD classifications of CA, 3A, 3B, and 4. Um, patients were excluded if they received dialysis within six hours of insulin administration, if they had diabetic ketoacidosis, um, did not have a repeat blood glucose value within six hours of the initial BNP or um, had only hemolyzed um, potassium results. A total of 377 patients were included for data analysis um, with 186 receiving five units of insulin and 191 receiving 10 units of insulin. Baseline characteristics were similar except patients receiving the five units of insulin um, tended tend to have had a lower mean EGFR and were more likely to be classified with stage 4 renal function. Hypoglycemia occurred in 12 patients um, who received the 5 units of insulin um, versus 16 patients who had received 10 units of insulin. Um, this was not statistically significant. Um, there was greater reduction of potassium seen in those who received 10 units um, compared to 5 units of insulin. So those who had received 10 units of insulin saw a, a mean reduction of um, 0.9 millimoles per liter um, versus um, those with five units who received five units of insulin saw a mean reduction of 0.63 millimoles per liter. Um, and this was viewed as statistically significant. I think that this study definitely warrants further investigation um, on whether lower insulin units units for hyperkalemia are necessary in patients with moderate renal function, and by doing so, um, are we limiting the full potassium lowering benefit um, that has been seen with the, the 10 units? Um, so I really um, like how they differentiated like the end-stage renal disease versus 
um, those who have moderate renal dysfunction. And then even further in the study, they, they kind of break up those uh, moderate renal dysfunction classifications as well if you wanted to um, look further into the, the data. You're exactly right. You're exactly low, maybe not low enough. We'll, we'll see. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, all right, team, we made it. What a what a great literature review series episode. A huge all caps thanks to um, both of the guest hosts. Um, and remember, go ahead and look for Paige and Jante on Twitter. Paige at Selexi Page. And Jante is at Jante Warren. Um, if you're looking to get in touch with me, I'm on Twitter at pharmacy to dose, TO to dose, or via email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. Um, again, Paige and Jante, thank you all so much. Um, and for the listeners, our friends at the pod, the reference list with the articles we discussed today and more is in the podcast episode description. And then remember, we have the full list of kind of all the studies from March that I'll release as well. So take a peek. Um, until then, I'm Nick Peters, and this is. It's Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast.